When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Generation Anthropocene listeners. First of all, thank you for taking the time to listen to our show and for checking in on the planet. If you like what we're doing and want to support us, then please take a moment to leave a review for us on iTunes. If you're listening to this on an iPhone, here's how you can do it right now. Go to your Purple Podcasts app, click Search, find Generation Anthropocene, and then click on the tab Reviews. There, you can rate and review us. Also, and I really mean this, we want to hear from you. If you have ideas for stories or feedback you want to share, you can email ginanthropocene at gmail.com. I keep forgetting, is it 4.6 million? 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we tell stories of people, the planet, and people on the planet. I'm Mike Osborne. Our show is fundamentally about understanding global environmental change. But for us, sometimes that means just understanding how nature works. We want to balance our coverage of environmental issues with stories that deepen our appreciation for the history of life on Earth and the wonders of Darwinian evolution. But that means we should take a close look at all of nature, even the prickly characters. So today, we're going to talk about venom. What exactly is venom? How does it work? And what are its evolutionary origins? Producer Miles Traer recently spoke to venom scientist Christy Wilcox. She's just published a book called Venomous, How Earth's Deadliest Creatures Mastered Biochemistry. Here's their conversation. One of the, the biggest themes, I would argue, in, in your book is evolution, how certain animals become venomous, how venoms themselves have evolved throughout geological time. Uh, and I wanted to begin with the first quote you used in chapter one of your book that goes, venoms are not accidents, poisons may be. Can you expand on that? Like, are venoms really an evolutionary must? I would say the the quote, what it's really saying is less so that they're an evolutionary must, but that you could end up having something be poisonous to you without it intending to be poisonous to you. So, I mean, when you think about metals, for example, like arsenic, it's arsenic doesn't have an evolutionary purpose to be poisonous. It's poisonous to us, but it's not doing so intentionally at the lack of a better way to phrase it. Um, whereas when you have a venom, because it is defined as being introduced through wounding and because it is therefore an active process it's not an accident they're not oh i'm biting you and it just happens to be (laughs) 
poisonous or, or, or have this toxic effect. This is something that is that is evolved. So building building from that thought, how much do we know about like the earliest venomous animals? Like, do we know what the first one was? Do we know how toxic the venoms were or what the common ancestors were? So we don't know a whole lot about really, really ancestral venomous animals. What we do know is that some of the earliest animal lineages have venoms. And so the cnidarians, the corals, jellies, and anemones are basically the earliest evolutionary lineage that had venom. And we don't know what that venom looked like millions and millions of years ago, but we do know what it looks like now. Um, or we're starting to know what it looks like now. And so that, that can kind of give us a clue in. It's really hard to detect venomousness in earlier animals, particularly invertebrates, because you don't get the details of how their body tissues might have worked. And so if you see something that has like a spiky point, well, was it spiky or was it venomous? Something like a lionfish is venomous, even though it just looks like it has a spike or spikes on its back and on its fins, right? Yeah. If you saw that in a fossil form, it would be hard to know that that was venomous because you don't see some specific gland space or, or other way of, of assuming that it's venomous. There's there was an interesting um, uh, uh, point that you made a, a couple of times, which is that producing venoms is expensive, not like dollars and cents expensive, but like energetically, it costs a lot for an animal to make this stuff. So are there any broad trends from the fossil record or from the more recent past of looking at these venomous animals and saying, oh, they're generally smaller, they're generally of a certain, you know, animal kingdom, whether it's insects or, or reptiles or anything like that. Are there any broad trends that we can draw based on that sort of expense of producing this stuff? Mm -hmm. It's an interesting question. I think part of what has made certain groups very successful is that they tend to do well in very difficult environments. And I mean, there's sort of the classic thought that everything in Australia is venomous, right? Um, well, Australia, by and large, is an arid, difficult place to live. And so the animals that do well there are ones that are able to sort of conserve energy and, and venom helps them do that. Because if you don't have to take a whole lot of energy in the moment to capture an animal, then you're saving, you know, you're saving all that energy it took you to run two miles or you're saving, you know, the wrestling energy it takes you to, to pin them down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so venom seem to be, they're sort of a, they're an expensive strategy, but they're a very specific sort of use your energy over time and slowly rather than in a moment and in a burst of action. And, and that tends to do well in really harsh environments where you don't want to be moving around a lot and and traveling a lot to try to get what you're looking for. Spread throughout the the book are some really incredible what I will call moments. You know, in geologic time they happen very fast. Over real time it probably took, you know, many generations. Mm -hmm. There are these moments in venom evolution that are really remarkable, like the shift from defensive venoms to potentially offensive venoms. Um, 
the early, you know, jellyfish and and whatnot starting to become venomous, the coevolution of animals like, you know, mongooses and the very famous honey badger now that can resist certain venoms. But the one that really stuck with me, the one that I just I had this what the hell moment you wrote. In Asia or Africa, around 60 million years ago, the snakes became more venomous, though scientists aren't quite sure why then and there. <laughs> I realize you say that scientists aren't entirely sure, but what the hell happened there? Like, that's an incredible moment. How do we know that, first of all? So what we do know is we can look at their genetics and we can kind of get a sense for how long ago these gene duplications occurred. And so... Snake venoms contain these certain proteins, and we can track those genes for those proteins and using some very complicated math, figure out sort of how long ago that had that duplication had to have occurred and when when they split from other animals that didn't have that um, same duplication, for example. Uh, and so we using the genetics we, and and fossil records, we can create these evolutionary trees that give us a hint about, sort of when all this happened, and even sometimes where all this happened. So we know that they they shifted from being sort of mildly venomous or, or even not venomous to having venom and, and having these potent toxins. And there were several protein families where there was these proliferation of genes that gave them that toxic ability. So that's how we know why, again, I, it, Everything in evolution comes down to giving yourself a little bit of an advantage, right? So whatever happened in that moment when they duplicated that, that gene, it must have helped them just a little bit in that moment. And then tweaks on that gene that made it more potent and more potent and more potent kept helping, right? Yeah, yeah. Instead of harming. And, and, and it allowed them to you know, capture some species or some animals that the other snakes were not able to capture or weren't, you know, quick enough to capture or something like that. So that actually brings me to the next one, which is, I don't, I don't think the word controversial is right, but certainly one of the more provocative theories that you write about is the snake detection theory. And can you explain sort of what that is and how it fits into this story of co-evolution? Right. So, uh, the snake detection theory has to do with why primates, particularly our lineage of them, uh, have such big brains. And the theory is that we had primate ancestors that were the perfect prey for these lovely venomous snakes. And of course, our primate ancestors didn't want to fall victim to snake predation. And so any sort of adaptation or change in how they were that would make them able to avoid snakes better would be advantageous and would potentially proliferate. And the idea with the snake detection theory is that the thing, the, the adaptation that made primates better able to avoid snakes was eyesight. And so our visual systems, you know, we got some small changes that accumulated that allowed our visual systems to have this acute three-dimensional color vision that we can really see a snake. And you can see it even nowadays. We've done tests with humans and with other primates, and our brains are able to pick up 
and detect a snake before we even realize we're detecting a snake in an image or in a video. I mean, in that microseconds of flashing, we know there's a snake there and, and our bodies have a physiological response to the fact that there's a snake there long before we sit there and go, oh, there's a snake. Um, consciously. Like subconsciously we can see yes. that? Yes. So if you if you flash images of something like a mushroom, which, you know, is poisonous and, and potentially could have dangerous effects, right? Or a snake, our bodies react differently even when those images are flashed so quickly that we cannot visually tell the person what we just looked at. <laughs> so what? That's crazy. It's amazing. So so we are primed at a very, very deep level to recognize snakes and to know where they are. So back then with our ancestral primate, a shift in the vision system allowed them to detect snakes better and therefore survive and reproduce better by not getting eaten by snakes. But to have a shift in the visual system, you have to have a better brain and a bigger brain more specifically. Our, our brains needed to be bigger. And so while we were getting the shift in, in vision, we were getting a shift in brain size. And that kind of set, I mean, I sort of think of it as like setting a snowball down a, a hill, right? And so you start to have the brain get a little bit bigger and the vision gets a little bit better. And then, oh, well, now this is actually working for us. It's going to get a little bit better. And then you have a certain threshold of brain size where you can start to think about things like language, like social networks, and, and all of these other things that wouldn't have been available to the ancestral primate with a really small brain. And so then all of those can take off and continue the growth of the brain that was started by needing to see snakes. I mean, it's it's a, it's an amazing sort of jumpstart moment if this is if this is true, right? I'm, my understanding is that this is still very much an active field of of research oh. and, and inquiry. Absolutely. I mean, and there there are very solid pieces of evidence that support it. Things like the fact that that the lineages of primates that split and ended up in the New World, where there weren't snakes for a while have slightly worse eyesight than the ones that were kept around snakes continuously, right? And, and eventually those guys got their snakes too, but they had a brief bit of evolutionary history where they were freed from this pressure and their vision had suffered for it um, and things like that. So there, there are these very helpful key pieces of evidence that really do support this, this idea, um, but it is definitely still controversial or at least speculative. I want to dive into the venom itself because uh, before I read your book, I hadn't really given much thought to what venom does. It was just always like venom gets injected, something dies. <laughs> that was kind of the standard narrative. But venoms do a whole bunch of things. And I was hoping if you could elaborate on what venoms are actually capable of. Yeah, I mean, so they do a lot of different things, and different venoms do different things, and some venoms do a lot of different things at once. Um, so the, the basic gist is, if you can imagine some function of your body that you can't live without, there's a venom, or at least a venom toxin, that'll throw it off. <laughs> so, so we think about um, everything that we move, right? Our breathing, our muscles, our, 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 that's all neurons, right? So we're sending all of these little neuronal messages around our bodies constantly to be able to talk, to be able to breathe, to be able to have our heart beat. 
there are toxins that just shut down neurons and they have a variety of different ways that they can do this, but that's their, their key pur purpose is shutting them down. Um, and those are called neurotoxins, not surprisingly. And so we see a lot of those in things like the elapid snakes, for example, like the cobras, where you end up with paralysis as sort of your, your route to death, let's call it. <laughs> you're going to die because you're paralyzed, right? And then you're, you're stopped breathing. That's, that's how you die from a neurotoxin. And then there are what, what scientists call hematoxins, which means they target the cardiovascular system, particularly the blood. What happens with these hematoxins is they either cause clots to happen or they completely inhibit them. And all of a sudden, when you have bleeding in different places that you're not supposed to be bleeding from, even before you've, you've wounded yourself in any way. And, and so we see a lot of the vipers and some of these other animals like um, Linomia moth caterpillars, where all of a sudden the tiniest damages to your body become life-threatening. So if you just get a bruise, which you know normally is considered a pretty minor injury, right? Yeah, yeah. But if you have venom going through your body and that blood's going to be clotting funny or not clotting at all, all of a sudden a bruise is a life-threatening injury. And it can complete then and you can end up with clots that then go around and cause a stroke or or things like that. So so we have hematoxins and neurotoxins. And then we have ones that kind of connect as both, but we tend to call cytotoxins, which are things that just destroy tissue. And they are these are the super creepy ones. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're I mean, they're the ones that that at least in the moment create the grossest wounds. And so when you think about having a a giant, you know, lesion that is growing and and liquefying necrosis, those are cytotoxins. And they don't Google that, listeners. Don't, don't Google it. Don't trust me. Um, and and so a lot of venoms will have a mix of these. It's We tend to think of them sort of on a scale of like, oh, hematoxic to, to neurotoxic or something like that. But really, it's it's not just a triangle. It's, you know, a little bit of everything. And, and some of them have mostly neurotoxins with a few hematoxins. And some of them have a lot of hematoxins and cytotoxins and a few neurotoxins. And it's all a big mess. <laughs> you mentioned another toxin or another venom that is actually like borderline mind control like what the hell is that so it's sort of a um it's called a special class of the neurotoxins when we think about it brains and the central nervous system is just neurons and we see that in in some of these animals where they're actually able to affect sort of the brains of different creatures and and the the triumph or the the animals that triumph this strategy of course are the parasitoid wasps where they're able to use their venom to essentially control the minds of these potential prey items where they're going to, the adult wasps don't actually eat them, but the baby wasps do. And so the, the mama wasps will inject venom into the brains of usually some other insects and then leave them locked up with a little egg, which will hatch into a larva and then eat the insect until it dies <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's fascinating because the venom makes it so that 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 the sacrificial lamb so to speak is completely complicit in all of this and it doesn't it doesn't try to run it doesn't try to kill the the larva that's eating it 
I, I want to shift uh, slightly here and, and talk about medicinal uses for venoms. Um, you write about how researchers have already used venoms to help diabetics deal with high blood sugars and how the medical community is actually pretty excited about some of the opportunities that are afforded by venoms or at least potentially afforded. And one thing that I didn't fully understand is that it seems like venoms might be helpful because they're very specific in what they target. And I was hoping you could sort of elaborate on that point. Why is it that venoms might be potentially really useful medical substances? Sure. So venoms, toxins in general, are very specific. I mean, there are ones that are less specific, but a lot of them turn on or off very, very small targets in your body. So if you think about how your body works and all of the different molecules that go into making up your cells. When you have a venom toxin, a lot of them turn off one or, or affect one of the billions of different molecules that are involved in, in your systems. And so a, a good example of this are ion channels. So in our bodies, we have neurons and they communicate by having these sort of cascading ion channels turning on and off, right? Now, the actual ion channels aren't all the same in every neuron and in every part of your body. We have many, many, many different ion channels that are slight tweaks on a theme. So they might all, say, be sodium channels, which allow sodium to flow, but they're slightly different. And so you might have, you know, sodium channel type 1 over here and sodium channel type 2 on a different part of your body. And a venom toxin could only affect type 1 and not type 2. And and in fact, we see that even at a, a far more specific level where you have, you know, up to 70 different potassium channels in your body and a venom toxin will only target one of them with any sort of potency. And so that specificity really allows doctors to potentially treat things in a safer way. And so part of what is, what is problematic about some of the drugs we have now is that they're not specific. And so you have something like morphine, which is a painkiller and affects you know pain neurons, but it can also affect the musculature and the uh, apparatus of breathing and cause you to stop breathing. And that's a really bad side effect for something that is trying to kill pain. So if you could find something that was similar to morphine, but only hit pain neurons and never hit muscle neurons, you would have something that would work as well as morphine, but have none of the side effects. And so that that's exactly what they're hoping, anyway, that these venom toxins can do. I want to shift again <laughs> slightly because it's been sort of an, an un undercurrent of the whole conversation we've been having, which is that this discussion of evolution We've spoken a little bit about genetic evolution, but one of the other things that you focused on in, in your book, again, was this idea of cultural evolution. How do humans view venomous animals and the venoms themselves, their little chemical cocktails? From a very broad perspective, the story seemed to me to be one that shifted from respect to fear. But what was surprising to me was how recent fear was as a real element of the the cultural evolution of venom 
Can you speak to the cultural evolution as you see it? Yeah, I, I think there's, I don't know if it's just that we've sort of lost our connection with nature in general, in a overall sense, or if it's something sort of very specific to modern life somehow. But I feel like that, yeah, that early on, I mean, these animals were deadly. They were potentially really harmful. They they were something that were feared, but it was more of a, a, a reverence, essentially, for that power. The idea that any animal, and, and you can see it even with, with other sort of big, scary predators like bears, any animal that had that power of life or death over humans was at least partially respected because of it. And especially recently in the past 100 years, 200 years, we seem to have lost that understanding and respect for for that ability. I mean, and we see things like rattlesnake roundups where they kill hundreds upon hundreds of rattlesnakes in a matter of days. And the idea that that we just don't appreciate how important they are, not just culturally and, and to us, but, but to the ecosystems that they're living in and the other animals that they interact with. I mean, those potent toxins mean potent effects on everything around them. And, and I, don't, I don't know why that shift sort of happened or how that shift happened. It's, <laughs> I, I, there must be an anthropologist out there that would be willing to take this up and really, really look at sort of human attitudes towards venoms and really unpack what's changed. You ended your book talking about our rapidly changing planet and some of the threats posed to our venomous neighbors. And this excited me in large part because this is at its heart sort of an environmental podcast and we want to better understand the natural world and our place in it and our place in broader sort of ecological systems. I was wondering why you chose to end your book on that particular thought. Um, For me, I think that conservation and sort of protecting and keeping these animals around is at the heart of everything in this book. Um, I am definitely, I love these animals, as you said. I love all animals. (laughs) And I think that it's important that even when we're thinking about how deadly they are or how they're going to tear our flesh apart, I think it's really, really important to keep in mind that they matter. And they don't just matter in a, you know, broad sense. They matter in a very specific sense. They matter culturally. They matter evolutionarily. And they they matter to us even when it comes to something like medicines. And when it comes to, especially when it comes to venomous animals, what we'd be losing isn't a snake or, or a spider. It's this evolutionary lineage that knows certain things chemically about our bodies that we haven't yet discovered. And I mean, you can see it every single month, every single year, there are new papers where a venom toxin tells us something about how our bodies work that we didn't know existed. I mean, just recently they had tarantula toxins that discovered a new sodium channel and it's how it caused pain in people. And it was a, a sodium channel we knew existed on pain neurons, but we had no idea that it was actually involved in pain. 
And so now, now that we know that, we have a whole new target that, that pharmaceuticals could be targeting to stop pain, particularly, you know, chronic pain, and some of these really difficult conditions. And we would never have known that without tarantula venom. And so I, I view them as this sort of books of knowledge that are just waiting for us to read. And if we don't, and if we let them just disappear, we're essentially setting fire to the Library of Alexandria all over again. Christy, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to chat with you. It was really great. Once again, Christy Wilcox's book is titled Venomous, How Earth's Deadliest Creatures Mastered Biochemistry. Generation Anthropocene is produced by Miles Treyer, Leslie Chang, and me, Mike Osborne. Isha Salian is our production intern. We want to thank Tom Hayden and Pam Matson. Our theme music is by Maserati, and our website is genanthro.com. You can also find us on Twitter, at genanthropocene, or you can email us, genanthropocene at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.